the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 18, Episode 7. Don't punish crypto for the sins of FTX. Talking with Jack Soloway, policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. With the spectacular collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder, calls for increased regulation and scrutiny are mounting. With us today, to put FTX and cryptocurrency in perspective, is Jack Soloway of the Cato Institute. He joins us today from his office in Washington. Hi, Jack, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for having me today. My pleasure. Jack, please take a moment and tell us about your career, both as an attorney and at the Cato Institute. Sure. So my career as an attorney began in practice area of cybersecurity and data privacy. I was working with some of the leading tech companies in the U.S. and abroad, including financial technology companies. I'd always been fascinated by the intersection of law and tech. I think there's the saying that data is the new oil. Sometimes I wondered, had I been born in an earlier era, would I have gone into something like railroad law? But to me, one of the most attractive sectors was tech. And I was really fascinated by these questions of how do you secure data? What does it mean to have privacy on the Internet? I had always been passionate about public policy. Actually, in college, I had interned at the Cato Institute. Um, it was one of the best professional experiences of my life. So I was really excited when I had an opportunity to apply that passion for public policy. In the, an emerging area of law and technology, the blockchain space, the crypto space, and working on questions of how regulators should approach this new sector. And that's what I do today, policy analyst at Cato. Fascinating. Jack, let's begin with a definition. What is a cryptocurrency? Sure. So it's a great question, and it's uh, one that often gets glossed over. A cryptocurrency is really a use case of an underlying blockchain technology, which is effectively just a very secure distributed ledger that is highly resistant to tampering when it's presented in its most rigorous bona fide form. Really, a crypt holding a cryptocurrency, which is denominated often in the unit of tokens, means that an individual holds what's known as a private key, meaning that they have access to uh, a line on this cryptographically secure distributed ledger indicating that they are the rightful possessor of a unit of a particular cryptocurrency. So it's a really at core a record keeping system and it replaces the traditional financial intermediaries like banks and brokers who for hundreds of years have been the ones to keep the books with actually 
in a sense, books that are distributed on computers all over the world that check each other's work in lieu of a single trusted third-party intermediary. Now, Jack, I recently I've, I've read that there are somewhere like 200 different cryptocurrencies. Of course, we're all familiar with Bitcoin, Ether. How many cryptocurrencies are out there that our listeners might be familiar with? So it's a great question. How many are out there that listeners might be familiar with? I think some of the name brands are probably in the dozens. In terms of the tokens that actually exist in the wild, those number in the thousands. So it's really diverse and vibrant ecosystem. And there's new tokens being, new token projects being launched every day. Now, let's move on to the FTX story. Can you take us through the FTX story? What was FTX? Who are its clients? And is FTX an outlier in the crypto ecosystem? Or are there other FTX potential disasters out there? Sure. So FTX is what's known as a centralized custodial crypto exchange. So we were talking just a second ago about the core innovation of cryptocurrencies, which is the capacity to disintermediate traditional financial gatekeepers like banks and brokers that keep the books. But FTX, in many respects, was really like a traditional bank or broker because it held on to customers' crypto tokens. It allowed them to trade them, to buy them, to sell them. But it had the facility to 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 custody them on behalf of customers. Mm -hmm. And it was in the position to keep ledgers to keep the books of who owned what crypto tokens. We've subsequently found out that based on revelations and testimony from the new CEO of FTX after its co-founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried stepped down, John Ray III, we found out that FTX did a historically poor job of keeping those books. And so you ask, uh, is FTX an outlier in the crypto ecosystem? Based on the testimony of the individual who probably has the most information in the world about it, perhaps aside from Sam Bankman-Fried himself, FTX was not only an outlier in the crypto ecosystem, it was an outlier in financial history in terms of, according to John Ray, the lack of financial controls and the lack of trustworthy financial records. So in terms of the scope of the alleged fraud, the alleged embezzlement, FTX does stand out. With that said, I think it's important to understand some of the different types of crypto exchanges in the ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, FTX is what's known as a centralized exchange. And again, that means that It kept the books and it held on to customers' assets. Mm -hmm. But there also are what's known as decentralized exchanges for crypto assets. And unlike a traditional middleman, decentralized exchanges are composed of software programs that are known as smart contracts, which are these self-executing specified conditions are met, they operate to affect a financial transactions. So for example, they've been likened to vending machines. You put in a dollar, a can of soda comes out. 
In the case of a smart contract for a financial instrument, a crypto token, you can program a loan. So say a certain amount of collateral goes in, in cryptocurrency X, mm -hmm. a loan could come out in cryptocurrency Y as if it were a vending machine. And there are exchanges, decentralized exchanges, that take a series of these smart contracts and allow peer-to-peer -peer transactions for crypto tokens without a centralized intermediary, without a manager like Sam Bankman-Fried, who would be in a position to, as has been alleged, embezzle customer assets, shuffle, funnel them to a proprietary trading firm that's in his own name, and also, as it's been alleged, hide some of these transfers from the company's books. And one of the reasons that it's harder to hide such transfers or that it's harder to disguise transactions on books with a decentralized crypto exchange is that these transactions settle directly on that cryptographically secure distributed ledger that we were talking about a minute ago. They settle directly on cryptocurrency blockchains. Jack, can yeah. I just jump in there? For most investors out there, we're, we're familiar with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which essentially regulates securities. We're also familiar with the CFTC, the Commodities Future and Trading Commission. We've been watching the Senate hearings on, F on FTX yesterday and today, where the, uh, the head of the CFTC was speaking, and I think one of your colleagues was also speaking. Where were the regulators? Was FTX regulated by any of those, by the SEC, by the CFTC. You mentioned the Department of the Treasury, which which would govern, uh, say, wires and transfer of money through wires. Were any of these huge regulators based in Washington, were any of them keeping an eye on FTX? So it's a great question. One thing to keep in mind is that the FTX group consisted of over 100 entities, some of them based in the US, some of them organized and based abroad. So US regulators have limited capacity to necessarily oversee foreign entities. With that said, there were FTX entities that operated out of the US mm -hmm. that were organized in the US. The FTX.US crypto exchange that served U.S. customers was registered in a number of states uh -huh. as a money transmitter. It also was registered with the Treasury Department's FinCEN. Mm -hmm. And you ask a great question about was SEC, was CFTC overseeing FTX? In short, to some extent, there was a CFTC registered entity in the FTX group called uh -huh. Ledger X. Mm -hmm. um, and we heard testimony from CFTC Chair Benham about Ledger X mm -hmm. and that in his view, based on CFTC oversight, that specific entity is still solvent. There also were in the FTX group a couple of SEC registered entities that performed brokerage and custodial services. In addition to that, we now see charges from the United States Attorney in the Southern District of New York against Sam Bankman-Fried for conspiracy to commit securities fraud, mm -hmm. conspiracy to commit commodities fraud. So there's definitely, in the view of U.S. prosecutors, some federal laws that will bite there. But I think your question 
gets at a broader one, which is who is the primary federal regulator of crypto exchanges in the US? And frankly, that's been a, a difficult, fraught discussion. And I think it's something that US policymakers in the hearings that we saw this week are really trying to get to the bottom of, mm -hmm. and it hasn't exactly been clear so far. Let's come back to the new CEO, John Ray. John Ray, of course, was uh, was brought into Enron to try to unwind the mess of uh, Enron. He's now the new CEO of FTX. You had mentioned earlier that he's created his own org chart of FTX and looked at all of the different subsidiaries and put them into four different silos. But he was quoted, and I'm, I don't want to misquote him, but I'll paraphrase what he said. He was quoted as saying that it's plain old embezzlement, that that's, that's what was going on here. What, what were your thoughts about, about John Ray's testimony and his, his characterization of embezzlement? Sure. So initial impression of the testimony is that the grown-ups are now in charge <laughs> of FTX. I think just demeanor alone, you couldn't have more of a polar opposite from the approach of the former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. In terms of the, the statement that this is just plain old-fashioned embezzlement, I think that's right. I think it speaks to the idea that the types of issues that plagued FTX are familiar ones in financial history, even if FTX was a place for trading novel financial instruments. And I think it speaks to the idea that the alleged fraud at FTX, the alleged embezzlement is not something that is endemic to the underlying crypto technology. Mm -hmm. Now, let's come back to uh, something else that, that Sam uh, was very active. He was a very active political contributor. I've read that he donated up to $40 million in campaign contributions across the aisle to Democrats, uh, less so to Republicans, but including some Republicans. Uh, give us a sense of, of what, and, and of course, he also had some very high-profile spokesmen speaking on behalf of him. Dennis O'Leary from the Shark Tank, of course, was one of the spokespersons, and he's going to be featured in the Senate hearings. Give us a sense of this, number one, Sam Bankman-Fried's activities with spreading around $40 million of political contributions, and then also attracting high-profile TV personalities, actors, to be spokespersons for FTX. Give us a sense of that, because he was... This FTX was not a secret. Uh, it, it was out there. They were occurring, he was currying favor with politicians. He was using high-profile TV personalities to get the word out about FTX. So talk to me about that because, it, again, given the high-profile nature, both on the political side and in pitching to average investors, once again, the regulators, it seems to me that the regulators, were they asleep at the switch? Or were they, so did one regulator think the other was covering the base? And was that their excuse? I, I, I'm confused. <laughs> I, I think a lot of us are, frankly. And in terms of Sam Bankman-Fried's profile in Washington, he was a very active participant in the crypto policy debate on Capitol Hill. He testified before Congress a number of times 
in one such hearing, he actually laid out some some proposed safeguards that crypto exchanges should be subject to, mm-hmm. such as safeguarding the private keys we were discussing that give access to crypto holdings. And what's so notable is that some of the very things that Sam Bankman-Fried proposed were the very types of controls that John Ray said were not present in any stretch, uh, Uh in any form, by any stretch of the imagination at FTX itself. In particular, there's actually one piece of legislation that Sam Bankman-Fried was a proponent of. It was proposed in the Senate Agriculture Committee, co-sponsored by a number of senior senators there, including Senators Stabenow and Bozeman, Mm -hmm. the chair and ranking member. It would propose to try to clarify this question that I think you're rightfully and many others are rightfully confused about, which is which regulator has jurisdiction over crypto exchanges and certain types of crypto tokens that more closely resemble commodities. That bill would have given jurisdiction to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Now, some folks take a view of this bill and say, if SBF was for it, should be against it. (laughs) I think There's actually something to that, because I do think regulatory capture is a real thing, but it's not as simple as saying if the CFTC was a proposed regulator in this bill, it's not necessarily the right regulator going forward. One issue I take with that specific bill, though, which I think speaks to some of these justifiable questions about regulatory capture is the extent to which at least an earlier version of the bill, an earlier an earlier draft that, w- that was put forward, would have swept in not only these centralized crypto exchanges like FTX, but also decentralized crypto exchanges. And from my perspective, the risk of treating centralized and decentralized crypto exchanges alike is that the risks they present are not the same. Mm-hmm. There's a There's a big difference between, say, what do you do about a project that's managed by an individual who we're afraid is going to commit fraud and embezzlement versus what do we do about a series of software programs? Do they, how are they going to perform? Do they have vulnerabilities? Those are just two very different questions. And so I think it's a mistake to treat centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, the same under a regulatory framework. Let me pose another question to you. Of course, cryptocurrencies are a global phenomenon. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. They are, there's, there are investors probably in every country in the world. Let's look at the EU, for instance. Has the EU tried to tackle regulation? Because I would, I would think that that might be helpful for U.S. regulators, or has Hong Kong, for instance, Hong Kong, ten, Hong Kong or Singapore, they both tend to have fairly sophisticated rule of law type regulations in terms of financial markets. Are there any best practices for cryptocurrency regulation that we can look to the EU, for instance, or to other markets, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore? It's a great question. And yeah, there are experiments and frameworks that have been proposed and enacted in jurisdictions around the world, including a number of those that you mentioned. The EU, for one, is a good example. 
they have a digital asset regulatory framework. Mm -hmm. There are folks in the US in the crypto, including in the crypto ecosystem who think it's actually a, a fairly rational approach that it provides a pathway for registering crypto tokens that it puts in place some, well, I think folks can, reasonable people could disagree around the margins of the extent to which certain disclosures are required of exchanges, certain proactive controls are required of exchanges. It's at least targeting some of the classical intermediary risks posed by centralized exchanges. And one thing that it does that's interesting is it also leaves open the possibility of further study of the decentralized finance ecosystem. And frankly, I think it's a re where a regulator takes the approach of we know the risks of centralized exchanges and we want to not jump the gun when it comes to decentralized exchanges. Anytime a regulator does that, by my lights, it is a reasonable framework to look at to at least inform um, how we think about this in the U.S. Now, there have been, for instance, China has recently created its own digital currency. I dare say there are many other central banks around the world that are looking at creating their digital currencies. Jack, could you differentiate from us those kind of initiatives where central banks are looking at creating their own digital currencies on the one hand, and then the cryptocurrency market, which of course is which is not subject to, which is not created by a central bank. Could you compare and contrast, are, are the two the two areas, digital currency and cryptocurrency, are they in any way comparable? And is there a race between the two? It's a, it's a really good question. And I think, I think in distinguishing them, uh, you get at a lot of the difference, which is who's issuing them. Is it a private group of programmers, particularly a private group of programmers like the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin who sort of disappeared into the ether after its launch? Mm -hmm. um, or is it an identifiable centralized central bank? And in the case of a central bank digital currency and the authoritarian regime in China yes. is a good example, there are some real risks in terms of liberty interests, in terms of individuals' privacy, when you have a central bank issuing a digital currency that could compete with private cryptocurrencies. For one, if you have, it's, it's hard to fight city hall, as the saying goes, so where the government itself is the issuer. It poses challenges to, say, private issuers of fiat-denominated stablecoins. It also raises some serious concerns about privacy, financial privacy vis-a-vis -vis the government. There's plenty of legitimate transactions that are completely lawful that folks justifiably would like to keep private, be it one's purchasing habits that might reveal something about their identity, be it their affinity for particular causes. And the risk with a central bank digital currency, at least on the privacy and civil liberties front, is invasion of folks' financial mm -hmm. privacy, sort of a circumventing of Fourth Amendment rights here in the U.S. Also, the risk potentially at some point, um, while it probably would be fought out in the courts and in politics of censoring transactions going forward. Let's bring that debate back to Capitol Hill, to Washington. Are there two camps in the Congress in terms of those who, those legislators who would want to see a more highly regulated, centralized digital currency 
versus another group that is more in favor of the way cryptocurrencies are evolving at this point, which is decentralized and with a lighter touch of, uh, of regulation? You definitely have skeptics and you definitely have folks who are more open to the possibility of a central bank digital currency. You have a case where there's sort of a, a my colleague, Nick Anthony, um, who with my other colleague, Norbert Michel, they have a, a paper out actually on this very question of central bank digital currencies that I'd commend to all listeners' attention. They've raised this question of when it comes to uh, central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, should the US be trying to keep up with the Joneses vis-a-vis China? And I think there's sort of a, an intuitive answer of if you can't beat them, join them. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it, I think it's really more important to, to not join mm-hmm. and actually to, to trust that the, the position of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency is not just an artifact of technology rails, but is an artifact of the rule of law in the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, which includes constitutional rights, which includes trustworthy uh, institutions, and really trust the key there. So it's not a question of should lawmakers put in place or take steps to have the central bank put in place a central bank digital currency. It's really what are the fundamentals that make the U.S. dollar strong? And how could the private sector help improve payment rails? So you already have, for example, private providers of what are known as U.S. fiat currency denominated stable coins. And between the two, between, between the U.S. dollar itself and between private technology innovation, that should really put to rest concerns that were somehow going to be lapped by an authoritarian regime adopting a central bank digital currency. Well. Jack, are the competing pieces of legislation on Capitol Hill, you mentioned Stabenow and uh, Bozeman, uh, both senators, and their legislation, are there other legislative initiatives out of this FTX debacle? I think that there are. Um, We heard from Senator Lummis in the Senate Banking Committee hearing today regarding FTX that the bill the comprehensive package that she proposed along with Senator Gillibrand is going to get it reintroduced next legislative session. So that's definitely a space to watch. Stablecoin legislation governing these these stablecoins that I mentioned that unlike, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum, which face price fluctuations, uh, stablecoins seek to be pegged to the U.S. dollar. There's a number of proposals regarding stablecoins, and I think that's a piece of low-hanging fruit in terms of where lawmakers can act. I think FTX presents a unique situation where typically the saying in Washington is, don't let a good crisis go to waste. So we have some some tailwinds from a crisis, but we do also have some headwinds from Sam Bankman-Fried himself and how active he was on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that has led to some brake pumping, which frankly is not unreasonable in terms of let's understand the facts before we figure out the solution here. Well, Jack, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners as regards FTX, cryptocurrencies, and where we go from here? Absolutely. So my view is that Cryptocurrency innovation has a lot of potential as 
as a technological layer. That's not investment advice. That's not about day trading a uh, cryptocurrency X or cryptocurrency Y. It's really an artifact of a new type of way to conduct financial exchange mm -hmm. in a peer-to-peer -peer way that takes advantage of open source software and allows folks all over the world to create and creatively recombine financial technologies. Uh, these smart contracts that I mentioned, two of the features that get discussed are what's known as permissionlessness and composability. Mm -hmm. And an analogy for this is like Lego blocks. So basically smart contracts could be reassembled and create novel financial arrangements. And the potential there is very interesting. And I would like to see the market figure out what the best use is for this technology. It may live up to its promise, it may not. It is not risk-free, it is not perfect. Those are things that are getting hammered out by a lot of creative entrepreneurs and investors. And it shouldn't be the heavy hand of government that decides which projects get green-lighted and which projects do not. There's a place for rational, regulatory frameworks like those that we discussed. Mm -hmm. But as a closing thought, it's important that private innovators get to have a say in terms of what technologies are brought to bear in the marketplace. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Jack Soloway today of the Cato Institute in Washington for helping us understand cryptocurrency in general, and then the FTX collapse. And more importantly, some of the legislative initiatives that will be coming our way. So, Jack, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a real pleasure. And Jack, how can our listeners follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Jack Soloway. That's S-O-L-O-W-E-Y. And you could follow my colleagues at Cato.org. Very good. Again, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. And we will... I'm sure throughout 2023, we will be back in touch with you and have you back to explain to our listeners the fascinating and somewhat complex world of cryptocurrency. I think you really helped to shed light specifically on FTX today and, and of course, the opportunity for cryptocurrency going forward. So once again, Jack, thank you. Thank you, Jim. That would be my pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 352. The San Francisco experience is carried on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Audacity, and Amazon Music, among others. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. Mm -hmm.